Thanks, Harry and Marika. Uh, hello, everybody uh, here and there. Um, good to be back with you in uh, Mafra. Uh, so please keep your Bibles open, uh, particularly at Acts chapter 6. And uh, before we deal with that, let's, uh, let's pray together. Uh, loving Father, we thank you that you've gathered us uh, together today. Uh, we thank you that uh, Zoom means that we can we can uh, enlarge our fellowship just uh, electronically. But we pray that as as we uh, come together, we would do so in heart and mind. Uh, that you would bind us together by your Holy Spirit. That you would teach us wonderful things from your law. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as as we continue to go through the Book of Acts, uh, Luke is a really careful historian, uh, and like all good historians, he chooses his stories. To, to, to tell the big story. And so Luke is careful to include certain things, and obviously he's left a lot out. Uh, the, the movement that Jesus left behind, the, uh, the teaching of the gospel, ministering of the word, it's, it's led to many thousands of people converting to followers of Jesus. Now, Luke can't tell the stories of all of them, and so he focuses on the ones that really serve to advance the story so that we can learn a great deal from it. Luke doesn't shy away from the difficult bits. So he's not trying to present a picture of the earliest Christians as being perfect. And so we've already seen some problems emerging. And so we saw the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We're at a time when people were uh, selling uh, houses and lands to provide for the needs of Christians in the community who were disadvantaged somehow Ananias and Sapphira pretended to be involved in that project and then squibbed on it. Uh, and so they, they were diagnosed as having lied to God. So that's a, a real cancer in the community. And so Luke doesn't pretend that this is an ideal bunch of Christians. But as we see the story going on, we've seen great success and we've seen incredible growth. Thousands of people have come to the Lord Jesus uh, and we've seen opposition. And so last week, the opposition magnified and Peter and John were commanded, don't preach anymore about Jesus. And they were beaten and they counted it an honour to be beaten for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. So we've seen opposition from without. We've seen problems from within. And now we see another problem. And this is perhaps the most serious of all. Because it's division. It's division of people that are not lying to God but it's division. Now, anytime there's growth, anytime there's progress, it represents challenges to any kind of human organisation. When you're going through change, it, it creates challenges, and sometimes those challenges can create real trouble. Uh, I got involved at Cairo Christian School in Druin at a reasonably early stage of its uh, life as a school. Um, so the school began in 1983. We put our kids in there in 1990. And, uh, and I became a secondary teacher there in 1993. And that was the very first year that we had secondary students. And we had a meeting, a parent meeting, because it was a parent-controlled school. So all these parents that were sending their kids to Cairo Christian School, they had a, an interest in the way that the school was going. And we had this meeting that got a little bit heated. So we'd started with secondary, secondary students for the very first time. And a lot of people thought that was a great idea. Uh, and the school has, has grown significantly since those days. But there were problems. Because you see, the thing is, when you've only got primary kids, you've got little kids, and they're mainly pretty obedient. They're pretty subservient, really. But when you get adolescents, 
things start to change. And so all these kids that were nice as pie when they're in grade two, three, and four, people are looking at what they've become when they get to year seven and they're saying the school's changed. And so this father got up at the meeting and said, I knew it was a mistake going secondary. Which means by definition, okay, uh, the very principle that brought you to establish a Christian school at all, you want something different from what the state system's offering. We're going to scrap that as soon as they hit grade six. You see, the thing is, change happened and the school need to grow to accommodate it. We had all sorts of teething difficulties back in those days. We'd have school assemblies with the, uh, the year sevens and they'd all have to sit on the floor like all the primary kids and they hated it. And I had to fly the fag and, and, and fight for the, the secondary kids in staff meetings and the primary teachers were grumpy they said who do they think they are i said they're adolescents you can't treat them like kids so the school had to grow and it had to change and that's what we're seeing here incredible growth leads to a real challenge and then as the challenge is met the mission of jesus makes good progress and growth continues now that's a great lesson for our church um, it's a lesson for all churches everywhere. When growth happens and change occurs, problems will come. How we solve them will either help or hinder the growth of the gospel. So let's have a look at it. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, this is the first use of the word disciples in the book of Acts. And now it means more than just the 12. It means more than the 12 Jesus chose. Uh, this is now a catch-all phrase for all believers. Now, we've got another term there, the Hellenists. Now, Helen, Helene, was, that was the name that Greeks had for their own country. So if you came from Greece, you were Hellenists. Uh, back when I was a boy, there was a Greek soccer team in Melbourne, and it was called South Melbourne Hellas, and that was the, uh, the Greek team. Uh, then there was the Italian team, Juventus, and all the other different ethnicities had their own teams. But South Melbourne, Hellas. So to be a Hellene means you're a Greek speaker. Now, these were probably Jews uh, who had learnt to speak Greek because they were living elsewhere other than Jerusalem, but they've come back to Jerusalem. And so they're people who've never really spoken anything other than the Greek language. But then you've got the, the Hebrews, which, which were Jews who had always lived in Jerusalem, and who had never spoken anything but Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus chose. So we've got a division now along language lines with people who don't necessarily understand each other that well, and yet they've all become followers of the Lord Jesus. Now, the particular problem was that the widows of the Greek-speaking Jews felt neglected. They felt left out in the daily distribution, as we see there. Now, this is a problem at a number of levels. Uh, God cares for widows. All the way through the Old Testament, when you get to the law, uh, Israel was told when they came into the promised land that they had to take special care of the most vulnerable. And they're summarized as being orphans and widows, people who couldn't support themselves. They didn't have pensions back in those days. And so the community of God's people need to make sure that they looked after orphans and widows. In fact, Psalm 68 verse 5 says that God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. That's how he characterizes himself. So if we want to be like our father, we need to do what he does. And that's look after the vulnerable 
the orphans and widows. There's lots more vulnerable, but that's just a, an umbrella phrase for them. And so there's two reasons that are given here why this division, why this inequity couldn't be maintained in the community. Now, if you were to look back to chapter 2, verse 17, you'd see that Peter on the day of Pentecost was preaching that they were living in a day when God was pouring out his spirit on all flesh. So in other words, not just Jews, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how can you have a community which is divided along language lines when this is a message for everyone? Uh, Chapter 2, verse 39, uh, Peter amplifies it further and he says, all who are far off. So there's those who are near, those who are far off, but they're all welcome. Well, now we've got a situation where the people who have been far off have come into Jerusalem and they're feeling left out. Left out of what? The daily distribution. Now you remember back in chapter 2 and then also in in chapter 4, we've seen that people were selling stuff and the believers didn't regard private property as their own. They, They felt that everything belonged to everyone especially if there were people in need. Well, now the money's being distributed or the food's being distributed, but the Greek-speaking widows are somehow feeling as though they've been left out. That's a problem. Now, that's a problem also because in chapter 4, verse 34, we read that there wasn't a needy person among them. And now there are. There are people who, who are being neglected. They're being overlooked. Now, there's more to it than just a simple administrative oversight. If, we get, if it was just as simple as saying, oh, look, we've got a problem, we better fix that. Well, that's pretty simple, but there's more to it than this because the word complaint there in, in verse 1, in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Now, that word complaint has a lot of weight to it because it's only used a few times in the Bible, and whenever it's used, it's used of something that's really very serious in the community. The word literally means to talk behind your hand. It means to mutter behind the scenes. I used to have a a student in a particular class I taught. Um, I don't know why people do talk behind their hands. Do they think that we don't know what's going on beyond there? Uh, But I'd be teaching away, and she'd be not too far away, like this, to the person next to her. And I'm fairly sure she wasn't saying, gee, I'm glad I've taken this class. I'm enjoying everything I'm learning. I'm fairly sure she wasn't saying that. So this word complaint is muttering. It's complaining. It's whinging. But when it's used in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 58, that same word is translated speaking wickedness against God when it's used in the book of Exodus in chapter 16 it's complaining about how they've come out of Egypt and they wish they could be back there because they had lots of food and they're saying where's the food coming from here out in the desert and they're complaining against God in number numbers chapter 17 uh, verse 10 it's it's described as being grumbling against God now Nathan prayed before about how God's given us lots of big things and he's given us lots of little things as well. Is it a good place to be, to be grumbling against God and his provision? That sounds like a really serious thing. It's exactly what was going on. So the Greek-speaking Jews were grumbling 
they were complaining. And Luke in particular uses a word that only has negative connotations. Now, the problem was real. They were being overlooked, but the way they were handling it was dangerous. It was insidious. And it speaks to the real prospect of division in this infant community of the followers of Jesus. Everything's been going along well so far, but this is a real chance to derail the whole program. Whinging, complaining, derail the unity of God's people. And so chapter 6, verse 2, we get to the dilemma, the dilemma that faces the leaders of that community, the apostles. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So it was a real problem and it needed to be solved. It couldn't just be shoved aside. It had to be dealt with. But it couldn't be dealt with at the expense of a more urgent priority. And the disciples identify that. They said, if we're to wait on tables, if we're to continue to oversee in a fair way the distribution every day, that's going to come at the expense of preaching the word. Now, it's preaching the word that's led to the growth. It's the growth that's caused the problem. If there were only 10 amongst those who accepted the word of Jesus, it wouldn't be a problem. It wouldn't be hard. It wouldn't be, it'd be very hard to overlook anyone in a small group. But because there's thousands and the thousands have responded to the word, they've got a problem on their hands. And so the disciples propose a solution. They summoned the full number of the disciples. And that's interesting. It's a bit hard to work out exactly how many that was because we're told it was 5,000 men the last time we read about it. Well, that doesn't include women and children. But they, they assembled the full number, brought them all together, and they said, let's see what we can do. So verses 3 to 4 give us the solution. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the problem was real. It had to be solved, but it couldn't be solved in a way that meant that they would disregard what they saw as their most important tasks, which is prayer and preaching, the ministry of the word. So here's the solution. They said to the gathered congregation, to all the disciples there, they said, pick out, pick out for yourself seven people that you know you can trust. So in other words, people whose character speaks well of them. Have you ever thought about that? The way we behave and the way we speak reflects who we really are, our character. And so the apostles, the disciples say to the gathered congregation, you already know from within your midst by their character who you can trust to do this job properly because we can't do it and continue what we think we must do. But you already know the sorts of people. Now, they need to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. So in other words, these weren't B-team players. It's not like this is an unimportant task. They're not sort of picking the second 11 here. These need to be fully formed believers, believers who have a kind of a character that impresses others as as people of integrity. So they need to be well spoken of. 
But it's interesting that the apostles identify that their chief priority is prayer and ministry of the word. And that takes us back to Exodus 18 that, uh, that Harry read to us before. In Exodus 18, Moses was wearing himself out. He was running himself ragged with all the tasks that it took to administer God's people at that time. And his father-in-law came to him with a very practical piece of advice. He says, you can't bear this burden alone. You'll wear yourself out. Choose trustworthy people to help you. Let them handle the smaller bits. And when anybody has a really big problem, then they can come to you. And Moses did it and it worked. And that's the principle that's being taken here. The problem was not insignificant and left unattended to. It was going to divide the community. But the apostles realized that their priorities lay elsewhere. And especially if they could appoint people who were spiritually equipped for it, people of good character, the problem could be solved, but they could continue to preach the word. And so that's what they did. Now, this is an illustration of what later in the New Testament is called the body of Christ at work. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, all use the idea of the church being the body of Christ. Christ is the head and we are all the limbs or the members. But we all know from just thinking about the bodies we've got, noses do, don't do what eyes do, fingers don't do what legs do, do they? And yet we need all of them. If you're going to chop wood, you can do it without your ears, but you can't listen to music with your arms. So we each of us have different members that make up the body and that's the way it is with churches. Different people can do different things, but everything needs to be done by the people who are best equipped to do it. That's the logic of this image of the body. There's lots to do. There's lots of tasks that need to be done. And this one that we're seeing here was a really important one. But the apostles identified their chief calling as being to do what Jesus had told them to do. Because how was the kingdom going to be spread? How was the kingdom going to grow? It was going to grow through what Jesus did, preaching. Jesus says, I've come to preach, to bring the message. It was the preaching of the word which had taken hold of people's hearts that caused the problem. And so they knew that they couldn't neglect it, but not just preaching, prayer. Because preaching without prayer will be powerless. And so the apostles identified this is the heart of our mission. It was when people responded to the ministry of the word that, that they realized that they had an obligation to other believers as well, which is why they were selling their houses and lands to make up for those who lacked anything. And so that's the solution. And the outcome is in verses five and six. It's a united church. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. So there's no more grumbling. There's no more talking behind the hand. Oh, what would Peter know? There's no, no more of that. What they said pleased the whole gathering. And so the congregation chose Stephen. And notice that he's a man full of faith. That was exactly what they were looking for. He's a man full of, the, full of faith in the Holy Spirit. So Luke confirms that the congregation's decision was a sound one. They've been looking for people of character, people whose lives spoke well of them, and they've settled on Peter, on, on Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus. Now, they're all Greek names. 
So the problem was the distribution every day to the Greek widows, the Greek-speaking widows, and it seems that they chose people from the very same community, Greek-speaking men. Now, it's a bit hard to tell exactly that that's what's going on because some of those names were pretty common for Jews. Um, and so uh, Philip was one of the, the names given to the disciples. But, um, but this is not Philip the disciple here. Um, this is a, a different Philip. Uh, but anyway, once they'd been selected, the community set them before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the situation that hadn't been right up until now has been straightened out. It's been resolved. And the apostles commissioned them for the work. So church unity has been restored. But then in verse 7, we see the second outcome, and that's church growth, because unity and growth will always go together. And so verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Wonder of wonders. Shock and horror. Priests are becoming followers of Jesus. Now, remember the last time we heard about the priests, they were beating up Peter and John because the Sanhedrin, the council, that was the priestly body. But now many of them are turning to Jesus. Now, that verse 7 is really very interesting. It's the first big summary that Luke gives us. He positions six of these all the way through the book of Acts. And they're like indicators we've got to the end of a stage of the book. And so if you were to march through to chapter 9, verse 31, 12, 24, and a few other places as well, you'll see these summaries that are included to say the word is going on, the word's growing, the word's increasing. And this is the first of them. And it's really interesting that Luke puts it right here. Now, remember that Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the end of the focus on Jerusalem. We see a little bit more in, in the next chapters with Stephen, but this is really the end of the focus on Jerusalem. And the good news is that the word's increasing and growing, even despite opposition, even despite the threat to the community of deception and now of grumpiness and division. And so Luke puts this in here to say the problem's been solved by the apostles speaking to the whole congregation, the congregation choosing reputable people to solve the problem. And what happens? Growth. And it continues. And so this is wise conflict resolution. Now, this is a challenge for our church and for every church because by implication, if conflict is allowed to fester and continue in a church, it seems pretty likely that God won't bless that church with growth. Does that make sense? That's, that's one of the take-home lessons from this passage. If conflict continues, God won't bless that church with growth. But when conflict is resolved, and conflict is almost inevitable in any community of people, and here we see a conflict between Greek-speaking and Aramaic-speaking people. But when the conflict's resolved and the community was taken into the confidence of the leaders to be part of the solution, growth is the result. And so here's a challenge from Africa Community Church. Is anyone here being overlooked? There's a challenge. What can we do about it? Not just the leaders, but everyone. What can we do about it? 
Now, if you see a problem that you don't think the elders have noticed, then speak up gently, quietly. Don't whinge. Don't complain. But in the spirit of wanting to preserve unity to create the conditions that God can bless and that will lead to growth, say something. Make sure that you're part of the solution, not part of the problem. So there's some conclu- just in conclusion, there's, there's some things that we need to avoid and there's some things that we need to do. Now, one of the lessons out of this is that we live in a culture that actually likes to complain. Have you noticed that? I used to think talkback radio was the problem because talkback radio gave everybody who could get through a call and they could complain about this and that. But now social media has blown talkback radio out of, the, out of the water. And everybody who wants to has a, has a vantage point from which they can complain. And complaining can often feel quite satisfying, can't it? Nothing like having a good old-fashioned whinge. And it happens in churches, and it's rarely productive. But it can feel quite satisfying when people feed on perceived slights or injustices, and they happen. Now, it may be that that slight or injustice was just an oversight. It was an accident. It wasn't intentional, but very often we can take these things to heart and pretend that they're intentional. Oh, I knew it. That's exactly how I expected them to treat me. Life becomes a series of self-fulfilling prophecies. Robert Hughes is an Australian um, social observer and art critic. He died a few years ago, but he used to write for Time magazine in America. He's written some quite famous books, and one of them was called The Culture of Complaint. And he said this. He He wrote in 1992. I think he realized he was a bit of a prophet. He says, victimhood confers a kind of hero status. Hence the rise of cult therapies, which teach that we're all victims of our parents, that whatever our folly, venality or outright thuggishness, we are not to be blamed for it. Complaint gives you power, the power of emotional bribery. So when you feel like a victim, you expect everyone else to feel sorry for you. And that can happen. Now, Proverbs 19 verse 11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offence. It's a glorious thing to overlook an offence. My grandmother used to say, don't give offence, don't take offence. So don't jump too readily to the conclusion they're out to get me. You might just be manifesting our, our victim culture in the church. But on the other hand, we've got to live with the possibility that maybe there has been a serious omission that does need to be addressed. So don't jump to the negative conclusion too quickly, but if the problem is real, then it has to be dealt with. So there's a bit of a juggling act. But Philippians 2 verse 14 says, do everything without grumbling or disputing. So grumbling, complaining, it's exactly the same word, shouldn't happen in churches because it's the enemy of unity and it's the enemy of growth. But there's another way in which divisions can manifest themselves in churches. It's just by casual oversight and, uh, and neglect. And so here's a challenge. How welcome are strangers in our church? How long does it take for a newcomer to feel as though they belong? Now, I don't know that we're distributing food and, and money to the poor in our church. I'm not sure that we are. But... 
the possibility of division exists. How long does it take a stranger or a newcomer to feel as though they belong? And what can people who've been around the church for a long time do about that? Now, I'll just give you a couple of stories, a couple of examples. Um, one of the churches I've belonged to, a uh, uh, fellow who was leading church that day, wanted to introduce something for prayer. Good thing to do, isn't it? But in introducing this topic for prayer, he wanted prayer for some people that had gone away from the church as missionaries. He didn't tell us anything about who they were or where they were. He just used their first names as though everybody upon hearing these first names would know exactly who he was talking about. That was all he said. Now, I don't think he meant anything nasty. It was just poor organisation. But I was thinking of all the people I knew who had arrived recently in the church who would not have had a clue who he was talking about. So he has just narrowed down the announcement to a very small sector of people that had been there from the beginning and who knew who they were. I was in another church where a fellow was leading church one Sunday and people were coming in late and he addressed some of them by name. G'day, Bruce, how are you going? Good to see you, Jazz. But he didn't address them all by name and there was a lot of other people that he didn't greet. But it was pretty obvious the ones he was addressing by name were the people he was friendly with. And so he's just divided the congregation into those that he knew and those that he didn't. Now, how long does it take for a newcomer to feel as though they belong here? And are we making steps to make sure that our announcements are inclusive of, of everyone? So you don't have to have been with us for 15 years before you get what we're on about. There are things that I just think wisdom means we need to bear these things in mind because we want to make people feel like they belong and that there's not an incredibly lengthy apprenticeship before they do. That's what I reckon. Yep. You were. Well, praise God for that. Pat's just, Pat's just said he was made to feel welcome. Look, I hope that's the case. But you see, the thing is, if God blesses our church with extraordinary growth, we're going to have to make sure that what happened for Pat happens for everyone. Right? Uh, that, that seems pretty sensible to me. But here's another thing. Um, preaching the word is hard. And preaching the whole counsel of God includes preaching things that perhaps people don't want to hear. And so a lot of churches have derailed their ministry by preferring to do things that will make them popular in the community rather than maintaining a real strict priority and saying we've got to keep preaching the word. The word is what brings growth. Make no mistake about it. God will honour his word. If we skip away from preaching God's word, why would God bless us? because he has promised to honour his word. And so you might be thinking, well, of course Steve would say that. That's what we, I, I hope I'm only saying it because the scriptures command that I say it. That's the priority. What's a church about? A church must be based on a, on, on, on a, devout, a devoted commitment to prayer and to the ministry of the word, serving the word. And that's what the apostles said they had to do. And it was the word that led to the growth. Now, we could do the sorts of things that cause people to say, oh, they're fantastic, they're doing this, they're doing that. We could do that at the expense of the word and then we've given into the world and its agenda. And we need to be very careful about that. I worked for a while at a church that had a food bank and they were getting government funding for the food bank. So they had it written into the rules of the engagement with the people that came to the food bank that they were not to talk about Jesus because that would be sectarian. 
So because they were receiving government funds, they couldn't evangelise with the food bank. So the question then is, why bother? We do have an agenda. We give away food because we want to demonstrate the love of Christ, but the love of Christ has to be explained. Uh, we do have an agenda. And, and uh, so I'm not saying anything against food banks. I think they're great. But um, if government funding gets in the way of that, then Christians need to figure out a way of doing their social action without the government being involved. Anyway, so there's some things to be avoided, but some principles to be embraced. Well, I'd say this, a well-taught congregation, a congregation of people that loves the word and that is engaged with the word and sincere in their desire to see the gospel in, uh, increase, uh, a congregation of that kind should be involved in decisions. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom in, in this room and behind those computer screens. And uh, I don't know everything. By definition, I can't. I'm an imperfect sinner like the rest of us. And so I need others to keep me on track and to bring, bring before my mind ideas that I wouldn't have had on my own. Right? Um, and so the whole congregation was involved in the solution of this very, very urgent problem. Uh, so there's something. And Luke makes it quite clear that when the right balance is struck, the word progresses. So getting prayer and ministry of the word, getting that to be the focal point, but not neglecting the others. Now, notice that they chose good people to do the job. And when you get to chapter 7 and then chapter 8, you'll see just how good these people were because Stephen preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts and then Philip leads the Ethiopian to Christ. So these were people that weren't just good at waiting on tables. They were good at telling others about Jesus. So there's some really big lessons to be learned here. Uh, and I'm trusting that if we continue to make a priority of prayer and the ministry of the word, which stirs people up, that God will grant us the privilege of seeing our church grow and all the problems that come with it. But we'll know how to fix them, won't we? It all starts okay. with prayer and ministry of the word. Uh, listen to this from um, Ephesians 4 as we drink. finish. Christ, who is the head of the church, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when we get all the bits working as they should, where everybody's doing their bit, where prayer and the ministry of the word's the foundation, Christ will build his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to take to heart these things that we've seen today. Uh, we thank you for your servant, Luke, who, who carefully wrote these things down for our benefit. We thank you that he did so with the help of the Holy Spirit. So please help us to play our part um, in working against any potential for division or disharmony that might uh, occur uh, in our church. Please help us to be careful to play our part in solving problems as they emerge uh, in, in a spirit of love and with a real desire to see the name of the Lord Jesus honoured. And we pray that you would uh, grant us the privilege of, of seeing our church grow uh, through prayer and through the ministry of the word as we love one another mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and help us then to, to face the problems and the challenges of growth uh, in, in wisdom and uh, with the guidance of your word, uh, we pray all these things so that the name of the Lord Jesus would be glorified in Mafra. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.